Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. If you like knowing that you can participate in an organization that is changing and evolving against industries that change and evolve, it's super exciting and tons of upside. I guess the only thing for my own career that's been beneficial is I've always been drawn to brands that are at inflection points. Launches, turnarounds, businesses that are broken. When I got my job at The New Yorker, it had 10 years of losses. What makes a great magazine business? Mm. Well, you know, tell us about the fundamentals of a successful business in, the, in this industry. I'm very fortunate that if you asked me at age 20 what I hope to do for uh, my career, I would want to run a magazine media company. So I've been very uh, blessed in working very diligently uh, you know, year after year. Hi, I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to the BOF podcast. On this week's episode of Inside Fashion, I'm joined by David Carey, or rather, I joined David Carey at the headquarters of Hearst, one of the world's largest magazine publishers based in New York City. And looking out from his expansive vista uptown in New York, David and I discussed the future of the publishing industry. It was a particularly interesting conversation for me because, of course, we at BOF are doing our own work in the world of media and publishing. As some of you may know, 
BOF started as a blog that I started writing on my sofa back in 2007, having spotted an opportunity to provide an informed analytical point of view on the business of fashion. So it was really interesting to talk to David about how he sees the media industry evolving in a time of digital and technological disruption. Around a year ago, we launched BOF Professional. It's our exclusive membership program for professionals working in the fashion industry. Every week, you'll get a number of exclusive analytical stories, the kind of stories that BOF has become known for, as well as a whole variety of other benefits. So if you're interested in the BOF Professional Membership Program, click on the link in the description and you can learn all about how BOF Professional can help you gain a competitive advantage in your day-to-day -day life as a fashion professional. So here's David Carey, president of Hearst, Inside Fashion. Hello, David. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm great. We're Thanks for stopping by. You got Fashion Week and you decided to come see me. Of course I'm, I'm I grateful. Did. Well, you've got this incredible view. What are we looking at here? Um, so the uh, Hearst Tower, now 10 years old. So if you look north, you can see Toronto on a clear day. Well, that's and if my you home country. I know that. And so and if you were looking over New Jersey as well, we see the Intrepid. We see the creation of Hudson Yards, where L'Oreal is and other important companies. And I think it's the largest real estate development in the United States right now. And so you get a great view. And on the other side of the Hearst Tower, you look across, quote unquote, billionaires row, all the new skyscrapers being built on 57th Street. So we, we kind of really are in the center of it all here. You have a vantage point of both your readers and the city um, that inspires a lot of the content in your magazines. It's a great place to look out. So what we wanted to do today is talk a little bit about, from this vantage point, what you see happening in the market. This is our Inside Fashion Podcast. You are guest number three. Um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about everything that's happening in the media industry and in the fashion industry. But I actually wanted to start with your own career because you know some of our listeners might not know your career path and you know what what you've done up until now and how you ended up in this office. So c can you tell us about what drew you to magazines and this industry in the first place and a little bit about your trajectory ending up here at Hearst? Yeah. Well, you're very kind. Um, you know, in my case, you've heard the saying before of people commenting that their greatest advantage might have been their disadvantage. And so I grew up in a little house in Long Beach, California. Uh, my dad worked in a grocery store. Uh, we didn't have any money. Uh, I went to UCLA. I had to figure out how to pay my way through UCLA. And I had heard that the jobs uh, working for the UCLA Daily Bruin, the daily newspaper, were good paying jobs for college students. So I started selling advertising in my freshman year and then was the publisher in my junior year had my own media company my senior year, so I was able to get through school um, fully funded with very little debt. And uh, there was a company that did inserts into the Daily Bruin um, called 1330. The, like, it was called Nutshell, was the quarterly insert, and it was owned by a then very important media entrepreneur named Chris Whittle. And so when I was 20 years old, I wanted to be Chris, and I wanted to work in the media business. And so when I graduated from UCLA, I sold my small little media company to finance my move to New York. And I basically hung out outside Chris's office until someone hired me. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very fortunate that if you ask me at age 20 what I hope to do for 
uh, my career, I would want to run a magazine media company. And so, uh, so I've been very uh, blessed in, uh, in working very diligently, uh, you know, year after year. That's an amazing story. But what was it that drew you, like, what is it that you like, liked back then, even back in college, about the idea of publishing and content and media? I like um, the media businesses then and now, and even more so today, that you are six months away from resuscitating a business that is challenged, or you're six months away from taking a successful business, doing well, and stubbing your toe and sending it into a trough. Uh, these are not like, you know, if you work in a, uh, if you work for BMW, you are designing engines that will. Uh, show up five years from now, right? You're, you're stamping metal, it's kind of permanent. And the nature of the media business has always been endlessly flexible. And, and so the things I had a chance to do very early on in my career, I saw that you were four good ideas away from success and four bad ideas away from failure. And I like that. Right. I, I like that it, there's a bit of a, we were joking before about living on the edge. Uh, I think that's true for the media business. And so, um, even if we have a business that's challenged, we can fix it. It's not always so clear what the answers are, mind you, but it's fixable. And um, and so, and we've watched in the last year, you know, or two years, we've watched one of the great media companies, Time Inc., commit suicide. Right. Right. Seven CEOs in seven years against a backdrop of you know incredible change, and they lost the company. And so that's it on a larger scale basis and now acquired by Meredith, which are really terrific operators. And so, you know, the businesses have always had the chance to be reordered pro or con on short notice. Perhaps that pace only increases today. So, you're, you know, you very astutely um, describe a media landscape in, in flux, um, in disruption. Um, how's business here? What's going on here at Hearst right now? Yeah. Well, our business for the last couple of years on a macro basis, we've actually done quite well. We had earnings growth uh, every year from 2012 to 2016. In 17, we were off a couple points. Which in the grand scheme of things, wasn't wasn't too bad. Um, and our business globally remains one filled with both opportunity and complexity. And some of our businesses are soaring and doing great. We have here in the office the first issue under Nina Garcia at L with Angelina Jolie, a terrific cover. Fantastic response from advertisers, very pleased. I had breakfast uh, last week with Xiao Shui, who runs El China, mm -hmm. and the opportunities there. And, and so our businesses, you know, divide between those that are taking big steps ahead, those that are holding their own, and those that we have to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so our overall position is strong, but we have 300 magazines around the world, separate from our digital businesses, separate from our B2B businesses. Okay. And, and so the one day that will get every single one of our 300 businesses to all grow simultaneously is the day that I'll take Saturday off, okay? <laughs> but until then, we manage you know, opportunities that are both going our way and opportunities that we think we can do better. Okay, educate us a little bit on the Hearst empire. It really is an empire, it's been built, but tell us about this, this business, where it came from, and how it's structured and organized today. What are some of the businesses that people may know about and some of the ones that we might not know firsthand. Yeah, so maybe we take a step back in, ter mm -hmm. in terms of Big Hearst, right? right. So uh, we're privately held. The corporation is 131 years old. And William Randolph Hearst, of course, our founder, a gentleman who lived large <laughs> before that was maybe as much in style. And in, in so many ways, you know, Mr. Hearst informs our culture today. 
He was a great entrepreneur, a great risk taker. In fact, if you go down in the building and you go to the subway entrance to this turnstile, this new kind of food court next door, he, one of the great quotes is he wanted the corporation to be alarmingly enterprising. And that was like from 1927. What, what a great concept, right, in terms of what we do. And as we think about what we do today with launching new magazines, new types of joint ventures, I think we live up to that spirit. So, um, of course, you know, Mr. Hurst was a, was a great entrepreneur, built a great company. Um, and when he passed away, he created a trust. The company is managed by the trust and has been now for, I think, close to 60 years. And if we think about kind of risk-taking, so first of all, the building itself is this great metaphor for the corporation. And for those who, your listeners who come by, you see the original 1925 building, six stories, that housed the International Magazine Company that, that William Randolph Hearst had, had created. And inside of it, of course, is the great Norman Foster skyscraper. That so it, it's always been based here, this, this, this company? The magazine company has yeah. always been based here. Wow, um, okay. Uh, even though the newspaper empire, now based here, but was founded in San Francisco, of course. But the magazine company's been based here for almost 100 years now. And, um, and so you have this kind of traditional base and this modern skyscraper reaching for the sky, which is a great metaphor for our company. So you think of all important moments over time, but when you think about business model risk, so in 1963, Helen Gurley Brown wrote a book called Sex and the Single Girl. Mm -hmm. And she became this cultural phenomenon as the word sex and the single girl, you know, then were not used in one sentence at that time. And she came to knock on our door because she wanted to create a magazine that was essentially a magazine version of her book. And uh, she came to see my predecessor, a guy named Dick Deems, you know, four times removed. And, and uh, Dick had said to, to Helen, well, we're not going to, you know, launch a new magazine. She had proposed a magazine called Femme, but we have a magazine that's not doing very well called Cosmopolitan. And if you want to remake that, we'd be happy to let you do that. They hired someone who had never edited a magazine, but had been a, then a kind of cultural star. And if you look at the last issue pre-Helen, the first issue post-Helen, you can't imagine a greater product transformation in your life. Right. And Cosmopolitan in 1965 and through the 60s and 70s wasn't a magazine. It was a rallying cry for a generation as women, college education, education surge and the birth control pill arrived and all of those things that were part of the 60s and 70s. And Cosmopolitan went from being not a very good business to be this great business for the corporation. And in fact, it was the profits from Cosmo under the uh, you know, brilliant direction of Frank Benick, our longtime CEO, that allowed the company to invest in the creation of the A&E television network, which lost money for seven years, or the 20% stake in ESPN that we acquired from uh, RJ and Nabisco in the 80s. And so Cosmopolitan helped provide a strong economic foundation that allowed the company to diversify into business information and, and uh, broader cable assets and our 30 local TV stations. And those businesses have grown up and become successful in their own right. And, and so if Helen Gurley Brown had not walked through our doors, I, I would have hoped that Hearst would be as successful as it is today, but maybe not. Mm. So the combination of Helen's editorial vision and Frank Benick's investment genius created the modern Hearst Corporation. Proudly private, broadly diversified across B2B and B2C, print advertising and electronic advertising, um, subscriber revenues and marketer revenues, U.S. and outside the U.S. 
Okay. And so we are really uniquely positioned across all media companies. Okay. It, I, I like how you raised the, um, the story of Helen Gurley Brown because it, it, makes me, it makes me wonder, you know, in the last, I don't know, 60 years or so since, since she was around, maybe it's more or less, what's changed in terms of what makes a great magazine? You know, you said that you originally you were attracted to this industry and you told us the story of why, but in the period that you've worked here and, you know, thinking back to those days when someone could come in and kind of reinvigorate a publication, you know, Nina Garcia, as you just mentioned, has come in to, you know, take the mantle at L. Like, what's changed in what makes a great magazine? Mm. You know, I don't know. I don't think the fundamentals have changed that much. And so, you know, people are, have always been busy, right? If you went back and, you know, and asked your parents, you know, in the 1970s, they probably seemed their days were pretty busy, right? And so, uh, you always have to fight, and this is not just magazines, but all media, you have to fight for people's time because um, they always have something else they can do. And so uh, the stopping power of a great magazine is as true for Elle as it is today as it is true for The New Yorker when I worked with David Remnick 20 years ago when he stepped into that job. And it was for Helen in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so, and I think the core nature of what magazines do, the magazine types of magazines that we publish and Conning Ass Publishers and the non-weeklies at Meredith, is these are vehicles that transport you. We live in a world where I don't care where you live, you, people always aspire to dress better, look better, live better, travel better, all of the above. You know, the, the globe fortunately is very aspirational. And we see this across our brands as we connect L China and L in Japan and L in Germany and so on. And so that's, that's a universal. Uh, and so I think what's different today, of course, is that we are fighting for attention with many, many other media forms, and especially what has been a topic of discussion just in the last six months, and that is the addictive nature of digital products. Uh, mm -hmm. That where people, you know, these are Pavlovian relationships, their minds have been you know, taken over to a certain extent. So that competition is a keen one, a little different than just competing against TV, books, and radio, potentially. But, you know, we've competed against all media forms forever. Right. And if that's what, if, if what makes a great magazine hasn't changed that much, because there's always been this competition for attention, what makes a great magazine business? Mm. Well, you know, tell us about the fundamentals of a successful business in, the, in this industry. Well, these businesses um, work best when the brand has authority, the team has authority, when you can command an unfair share, if you will, of either ad revenue or consumer revenue. And so, and I think where the nature of the media business is today is um, uh, all media companies, to a certain extent, grew up by being, we'll call it some things to all people, lightly touching big audiences. And I increasingly talk about the need for our businesses to become all things to some people, to super serve a specific group of people. Super serve yeah. the niche. As super serve the niche or the passion or as yeah. it is. And I think that all media brands have that opportunity versus being kind of generic, general interest against a large group of people. And I think this is true for the television business as well. The, the, of course, the TV business, there were just three and then four networks. But the cable networks really came along, of course, in their own way, super serving certain verticals. And the, the power of ESPN or the power of the Scripps brands um, 
you know, which Discovery just bought the Scripps organization or is about to. We see this in our, in our joint venture relationships, um, of which we have many. Partnering is a very natural ability of the Hearst Corporation. And so um, when we started, of course, with Oprah, now 17, 18 years ago, started in 2000, and Food Network and HETV, those are you know, some of our most powerful businesses, and in part because the concept of which you, know, you learned uh, very much at that fine business school in Boston, uh, the concept of a unique selling proposition, having something that no one else has. Mm -hmm. And so if you are a fan of Oprah or you're a fan of HGTV or Food Network or now Reed Drummond, Pioneer Woman, our latest new product, then um, you can't find that anyplace else. And, and so that also becomes increasingly a, a, an important uh, differentiator is how tight that you know USP is. And we're fortunate to have... Um, many of them, and those, if we feel the USP is too fuzzy, we have to make it stronger. Sure. I think the great work that Jay Fielden did at Town & Country when he first got there now, with it, Staline has followed on, is a great example mm -hmm. that Town & Country kind of lost its relevance to a sub-50-year-old generation, and through sharpening the editorial focus, giving it more of an edge, not being afraid at times to publish really controversial material, they regain their footing in, in a really a relatively short period of time. Mm -hmm. In in talking about super serving a niche, you know, brings to mind this quite significant acquisition that um, Hearst has made recently of, of the Rodale yeah. uh, company. And you know, you think about the magazines in that portfolio, and you really think about passion. Is that the underlying motivation for like making an acquisition like that? You know, what what was the what was the goal? Why mm -hmm. that? Why that business? And why now? Well, I think threefold. The first is we believe that the focus on kind of wellness and fitness is a global one. So that's a, that's a positive, right? Uh, you see people running along the Bund in Shanghai and every place imaginable, um, and so uh, that's important too. Is we thought that these brands travel very cleanly around the world. Your own brand, business of fashion, super clear what it is, right? Doesn't require a lot of interpretation. Some of our brands that we publish for a long time mean different things to different people. Country living in the U.S. is a significantly different product than country living in the U.K. But men's health and women's health around the world can have a common meaning. That's also helpful for digital, right, mm -hmm. and the importance of search. And then finally, especially with their bicycling and runner's world products, these are enthusiast businesses. You know, when you meet people who are a crazy cyclist and how much time they spend, how much money they spend, that's a big part of their identity. And we wanted to get closer to those businesses like that. And so we think there's a global magazine opportunity, a global digital opportunity, and certainly starting in the U.S., a very strong enthusiast play that would provide important learning for the entire company. Sure. But it's you know, undeniable that the magazine business is in a period of dislocation right now with advertising revenues falling with um, you know we spoke about attention and you know essentially uh, media companies have to monetize people's attention and attention is spread over so many different uh, kinds of media now you know in that kind of environment a you know how do you continue to you know ev evolve and pursue a model that relies on advertising and b you know, are there ways of getting more of that revenue from the, you know, if you're becoming all things to that group of people, 
is there ways of ex extracting more revenue from that end reader instead as these ad advertising revenues fall? I know, for example, um, your old colleagues at Condé Nast have started, you know, paywalls on some of their properties. I think maybe even the New Yorker. New Yorker has been a great success. There. Yeah. So Absolutely. how are you thinking about the shift in the business model as you have this growing portfolio of yeah. magazines? Well, you bring up two, two good points. One which I'll agree with and one which I will not. First of all, I would say that all of media is in a period of dislocation. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the magazine business. You're watching cable household penetration rates fall. You're watching, certainly among my own children, I'm blessed to have four children, and um, we have one of the Netflix accounts that allows, I think, four people at once to use it. And I never really watch much TV, but I wanted to watch a Netflix show. And I couldn't get on because all the passwords were being used. And I emailed <laughs> my kids and I said, I want to watch a show finally for the first time. And they said, well, we've given the password out to so many people, we don't know who's using it. Okay? <laughs> and I think someone said there was one password I read that was in simultaneous use like 100,000 times. So the cable business has its pressures, every business imaginable. We're watching some of the current high-flying darlings of the pure play digital companies that could be out of business by the end of the year. So, you know, it just, that's just... Like? Uh, I'm not going to name any names. Okay. okay? But your own company is um, a great story. I can tell your story. I'm a, I've watched your development. There used to be a once all-powerful company covering the space, three initials, I forget what they were, and there was this <laughs> nascent company that had like four employees, right, or whatever it was at the time, and bit by bit, you've watched positions change. I watched the people, you know, who, who recently participated in your live event in, um, in um, Soho Farm? Was Soho Farm, Farmhouse, yeah. And, you know, People that, you know, eight years ago, you probably never would have thought would have, you know, joined you for a discussion about the, the shape of the business. So that is the, the nature of constant change across the business. Uh, and it's, it's great to watch companies like yours challenge conventional wisdom and, and be, you know, kind of the, the oldest players at, at the same game. Um, uh, getting more revenue diversification is important. And that could be not only from consumers, but from businesses as well. And, and so, I think any business period that is reliant solely on advertising, the more revenue streams you have, the better. Uh, and so um, we are certainly cheered by what the New York Times in particular has done with getting teaching people to pay. That's a good thing for the entire business, yeah. is that digital does not mean free. And, and so, you know, I think what the Times and the Post have done in newspapers, I think helps the magazine business. I think the Times early focus on paywall has helped the New Yorker. And I think what the New Yorker has done will, will hopefully pave the way for others as well. And then at the other time, the, the creation, which we've done some experimentation with around membership models. So around our Oprah brand, we have something called O Circle of Friends. The magazine costs, we'll call it $20 a year. And no circle of friends, I think it's 149 a year. And you get a lot of special benefits and features, uh, including a card on your birthday uh, from Oprah. And, and so uh, I think there's uh, lots of opportunity that will involve greater segmentation of the audience between those that are the true believers. Because the nature of the magazine business, all media brands have those that are incredibly loyal in the center, who will give you lots of money in exchange for special access and special information. And then you have those on the periphery that are happy to read two issues a year and call it a day. And we need to think about our products and as we differentiate our products from that group for where the demand is absolutely the highest to when the demand is the lowest and they should be treated differently. Right. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So, in in that respect, you're also think you're also launching new magazines. Absolutely. And you know, you I, I see on your you know, table here, you have a a copy of the Pioneer Woman, which won't necessarily be um, a, a title that's known around the world like some of your other brands. But I understand that it has absolutely huge potential. And right alongside that, there's Airbnb Mag. How are these new titles fitting into your strategy as the Hearst business kind of adapts to this new landscape? Yeah, so first the way we create our products and the reason we stay at it, and we do hope to test at least one if not two new magazines this year. Um, we, uh, we like to do these with joint ventures and we like to do them with partners. And we publish two initial issues and we read the results. So it's like an experiment. It's an experiment that we see how high functioning is the partnership, 
with all due respect and not to reveal you know, too much private information, the test cost, we'll call three million bucks, divided by two between two companies. Not the largest amount of money uh, where R&D is important to all businesses. And you know, uh, my own experience, and so for me within this company, one of my you know, real opportunities is I was the publisher of Smart Money, a joint venture with Dow Jones in 1990. And we announced Smart Money uh, between the two companies. Hearst was going to control the ad sales and the business side, and Dow Jones was going to create the content. And shortly after we announced it, um, this is a history lesson for your listeners, Iraq invaded Kuwait, the stock market fell 22 points, and there were huge outflows out of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. All of a sudden, people hated the stock market, like what we all felt like a week ago, right? Yes. And the markets are volatile. Yeah. And we were launching a new magazine about stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. It seemed like the worst idea possible. But lo and behold, we kept at it. We published our two test issues. We had a good response. And the following year, we did four. And the markets had turned around. And there were huge inflows into the stock market. So I think it's impossible to predict the right time to create a new product other than when you have a good idea and a good partner. And you see what happens. So Pioneer Woman, the second issue sold 350,000 copies at the newsstand. And while it wasn't a monthly per se, I don't think there was another single issue of a magazine in the U.S. that sold 350,000 copies last year. At newsstand. At newsstand. And tell us about that publication. Like, Why is it performing like that? Well, I, I think you have two good data points for the industry. You have Magnolia Journal that, that Meredith has created with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Great success. I'm totally jealous of them. Okay, And we have Pioneer Woman with Reed Drummond. And these are individuals who have huge and rabid followings among their audience. And Reed built her following the old-fashioned way, connecting with people, you know, blogger, TV personality, uh, author of cookbooks. She is, she is among her audience. She's enormously admired um, in a way that some people compare her to Martha Stewart of an earlier generation. And so she, her bona fides came from, you know, step by step of becoming very skilled at connecting with her readers. And so against that, it's not a huge surprise that it's done so well. In the case of Airbnb, it is our test uh, against the generation of, of readers who see Airbnb as a community that wouldn't necessarily read established travel ma magazine A or B, but this is part of their world. They'd rather, when they travel, have an Airbnb experience than to stay at, at one of the well-known hotel brands. And so we keep finding these different communities in different ways. And two issues last year, four issues this year. If all goes well, there'll be more issues in the future. But we've done other products of late that we rolled them out, and after a year or two, they didn't quite do what we wanted, and we dialed them down. That's For example? That's okay, too. Well, we, we converted Dr. Oz from a 10-time-a-year product to a four-time-a-year bookazine. Right. And that felt, for his particular business, the more, the more best-suited uh, business model for that. And so, um, so there's a certain amount of flexibility you have in these models to dial them up or dial them down as you need to. That's okay, too. But, you know, there will be more new magazines across the industry. As I reminded, um, uh, you know, every category, uh, if you go back, you know, millennial, you, it always seems hopelessly congested. No one wakes up every day thinking, I need a new fashion brand. I need a new watch brand, you know, until something comes along that they didn't know of, and all of a sudden they can't imagine their life without it. Or if I want to be a little bit of a smart aleck, I will quote the great, old saying from 1895 that the head of the U.S. Patent Office 
had said they should close the patent office because they believed that anything that could be invented had been invented by that point. <laughs> and so it's axiomatic no matter what point you are, right. it seems like the world is filled with too many products, but trust me, there will be entrance into all categories that we, that we consume goods in next year and the year after and on it goes. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of at kind of new products, we haven't, we haven't actually spent that much time up until now talking about digital innovation and mm -hmm. digital, you know, in a way, digital first businesses. Mm -hmm. what, what is Hearst doing in that space? I know you've made some investments. You once said something like, um, we like to invest in companies who wake up and try to kill us. You know, That's who, true. <laughs> who are the companies that, you know, what, or, you know, one, who are the companies that you're looking at or you're, you think are doing interesting things in the market? And two, you know, what are you doing internally in the digital space? Or is your model to just kind of let the innovation happen outside and then just when you see something good, go out and, you know, take a stake in it? No. So we, we have great respect for entrepreneurs here. And, and so um, those companies that are upstart companies, um, we have a lot of admiration for them. And we, you know, our preference with many of them, including those who hope to displace us one day, is to partner with them, invest in them, all of the above. And, and we have scores of investments across the corporation in those businesses. So we own ESPN, you know, the, the mightiest brand reaching men, and then we own 15% of Vice Media, which hopes to grow up to be the ESPN of the future. And we have a very small stake in Refinery29, a company that we respect. And BuzzFeed, which hopes to one day displace kind of the, our local news media. And so we're not threatened by those companies. We, we'd rather partner with them than to be disconnected. And so we do spend a fair amount of time looking at those companies, what we can do. And that's separate from our own track of innovation. And so you have covered our president of digital, Troy Young, in the past. And Troy brought an entirely different way of thinking, a way to leverage our global scale. As you know, across our Hearst businesses, we've harmonized our digital platforms globally, reducing a great deal of unnecessary kind of complexity in what we do. We have um, now our best content moves around the globe with lightning speed. Um, we'll have the Oscars coming up in a month, I mm -hmm. guess. And we'll have one team here in New York, you know, that'll be producing content for our entire global ecosystem. As opposed to having multiple teams repeating the we same had, work. We had a lot of redundancy. We didn't take it as a scale. We, we, for a long period of time, I can speak for Hearst, but I think this is true for others, you know, scale became a negative and not a positive. And we had to flip that around, which is super easy to say and incredibly hard to do. What do you mean by that? Well, because... Um, what it required is, uh, for example, the harmonization of our digital platforms. If you had gone back in time and you looked at Cosmo and Six Markets, they were entirely six different digital products uh, uh, with different navigation. And, and, and so we had to pull all that into the center because we compete against a handful of big companies. You know, Facebook is the same in Austria, in Austin, Texas, and in Australia, mm -hmm. but we were different in all markets. So we had to um, standardize uh, what we could, but then allowing the individual differences for each market to still flourish, but not to get to the point that we had to recreate everything. Right. And, and so once we got that solved, our earnings from digital took off. And I do believe we run the most profitable digital media business of any of our peer set. And what's been the secret to that success? The secret has been, um, to make it easy for advertising and content to flow around the world 
uh, without friction, without cost, and without permission. So someone in the US who's the editor of townandcountry.com can see something that runs on Cosmo in the UK, and if it's relevant to her site, her decision, not top down, in one click it can show up. Really? Uh, absolutely. And does she have the right to adapt that content or change it, or does it need to be? You gotta pick it up, and so you don't wanna mess with the Google algorithms and so on, and you do have the attribution to the original source of publication. So we might change the art, but we don't really usually change the words. Okay. And it works fine, and we have examples of things that are a modest hit in one market, and get imported to another and became huge hits. Right. And in that particular way, you think about your fashion clients, it's kind of the same, right? If you walked into Burberry in London and Burberry on Madison Avenue, or let's take the new Bottega flagship, which I only read about, right, in Upper Madison Avenue, and Bottega in Milan, you'd find many, maybe not the, all of the same products, but most of it, right? And so we had excessive customization of our business. And that was driven by the need that everyone wanted to recreate everything at a local level. Sure. And, and we had to balance where that was necessary, but where that was potentially impeding our progress. Understood. I, I do want to touch on some of those companies that you mentioned earlier, the refineries, the vice medias, and, and so on. Um, as, you know, as, as we look ahead through, through this year, you know, there's been a lot of talk that some of those companies are in trouble because they're highly dependent on advertising and they've raised lots and lots of money at very, very high valuations with no clear path to being able to kind of realize the value accorded to those companies based on those valuations. You know, what's your take on the future of these digital, you know, digital first media businesses that are very, very dependent on advertising. Yeah, so I, I think that we've seen uh, probably three waves of digital uh, during our, uh, since digital has been an important part of our lives. And I think with every wave, you have those that succeed and break free and become good and viable businesses. And you have those that blow up. Fab.com, worth a billion dollars one day, worth not a billion dollars the next day. And so that's the nature of, of this business is both you know incredible ascents and a lot of, as well as a lot of destruction at the same time and that's okay i think it's the nature of where we are uh, i'm not going to mention any companies in particular i think that we will see that there's been a wave of companies that you know had a lot of investor financing um, and i think they built themselves hoping to be sold there was a period of time in a whole set of ad tech companies that were only built to be sold to aol yahoo or Google, right? And I think that has changed as well because I, I think the you know I think Marissa Mayer bought a lot of companies and they didn't quite add up to very much. And, and so I think the pressure will be on these companies to turn into durable, profitable businesses and have business models that are designed to sustain them versus only to serve as a mere form of attraction to a potential suitor. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're kind of at that moment right now. You know, Fred Wilson, the influential uh, VC from U Union Square Ventures, uh, I think a year ago said he has stopped advertising, has stopped investing in ad-supported digital businesses. Mm -hmm. That doesn't say that there will not be others launched and so on, but I think we'll be at an inflection point in this business. And I do think that you will have as you started to see with the All and Shazam and Mashable, you will see people that will um, uh, find their valuations go down a great deal because they have not achieved their business plans. 
That doesn't mean that there will not be another wave of these companies coming over the hill, and there will be and there should be. But I think we'll, we'll end this year um, with fewer of the buzziest of the pure plays, but other ones that will soon be on the launch pad. Okay. And just one more thing on digital media, because I'm really curious about your perspective. You know, if you were thinking about the mix of what makes a great digital media business, we talked about what makes a great magazine business, mm -hmm. but what makes, what's the makeup of a business model that you think has legs for digital media? Mm. Well, in, in its core, you do have to have, because of the needs of the audience, you do have to have an organization that can produce a lot of co good content very efficiently, right? And to get it done and get it out the door, and, as your organization does. And I think everyone's learned that, in this case, more is more. Yet the content and the voice have to be clear, right? You know, if, if people, you know, the, the benefit of physical media is you have the magazine, which plays an important role at defining the personality. Um, and so, the New York Times is different than, than L, which is different than Vogue, and you hold them and you feel them. But, you know, on screens, it, it all kind of feels the same. You lose the physical point of difference. And so that voice, its quirky personality, has to be even more important because you don't have the physicality of the medium to carry that through. Right. And, and so um, that becomes super important. Uh, overall in a way that's different than it is for magazines. So that's the creative side, the content side, but what about the actual underlying business mm. model? How do you monetize that? Well, you, the, the business, the monetization business, separate from attempts to drive subscription revenue, has kind of evolved into a barbell, which we had been expecting for some time. So on one side you have a great deal of pro programmatic advertising. You know, Commoditized. Well, you know, data-informed, purchased yeah. at the moment. So mm -hmm. not so much commoditized, almost the opposite of that, but very specific. So it's hyper-targeted. And so they, you know, hyper-targeted based on, you know, a, a lot of my known behaviors. And so, um, and what's, you know, amazing is how much of our revenue that will happen today that comes from companies that you know, are gonna buy our audiences in a fraction of a second from when they load the page on Town & Country, they're auctioned off based on their characteristics, the ad is served, and it's one of the great kind of magic tricks of all time, right? So in our digital business, probably you know, 30% of our, of our revenue now is programmatic. You can't plan for it, you just have to create a lot of good content, drive audiences, and then have a very good team that can monetize that. So there's one piece, we have a great programmatic team led by this amazing genius. I won't want to mention his name in a public setting, but it's very important to us. And then you have the other side of the barbell being now a set of highly customized programs that involve the creation of special uh, content and special executions that live on our own site, but we buy media on other sites as well as they extend this beyond just the Hearst perimeter. And so that's kind of an agency model and then a programmatic model. And that's kind of the world that we live in. One is computers selling to computers, backed with humans in terms of you know, making sure we manage all the exchange as well. And the other is you know, people intensive, building very bespoke programs for our clients. And will that business ever, do you see a, a time when that ever will be big enough to make up for some of the diminishing revenues from print advertising and, and kind of more traditional media streams? Here very much so. That's what we've enjoyed. You know, we've had a surge of profitability of our digital business, and over the five-year period of time, 
in the U.S., the growth in digital earnings has far outstripped any decline of the print business. And our print declines have been pretty modest. And so I think there's absolutely that opportunity. Isn't it likely, though, that the, the print declines will accelerate in the future? So you know, as, you, as you project forward, what happens? Because some of these models that you've mentioned, the programmatic and whatnot, they are, you know, I used the word commoditized earlier, maybe that wasn't the right word, but, you know, it is, I think, harder to distinguish yourself because that's, you know, all based on technology, which, you know, which people can buy and, uh, and build, and it's just based on creating more and more and more content. So, you know, how do you... I can make the case for all media, you know, either the growth rates will be positive or negative into the future. So we have a, a number of our businesses that did fine last year and have good growth this year. Uh, and uh, the ones that you think would, would grow in some cases have not. And, and in terms of digital, of course, the, the big discussion is, you know, what role does the, um, does the great sucking sound of Facebook and Google mean uh, uh, to everyone's ability to grow when they control 60 or 70 percent of the, the of the market and, and almost all of the growth. Now, the market is big enough that you can still grow within that, although their presence doesn't make it so easy uh, in, in some ways. And, and so um, I will not concede that the print declines will accelerate in the future. Um, uh, there's ways for a company like us, and in some cases as we go around the world, we saw some of our international markets that had many years of punishing print declines that have now moderated. And so um, I think, you know, we have to tell the story of our media platforms every day and very proudly. Uh, and so we think that all of our businesses have a chance uh, to have a stronger 18 than 17, regardless of the macro trends of what's going on. But it requires us to be ever more kind of creative and thoughtful of what we do. Okay. So I just wanted to conclude with a little bit of advice. You know, there's, um, you know, if you're going back to your 20-year-old self at UCLA and publishing that paper and thinking about um, building a career in media, which you have clearly very successfully done, um, in, a, in a landscape that's changed, but also benefiting from your experience, you know, what do you, for people who want a career in media, either on the content side or on the publishing side, what what do you think it takes now? And you know, what advice do you have to offer mm -hmm. to young people pondering a career in this exciting space? Well, I can only speak for myself. And so I guess uh, two things. The first is, you have that age-old question of what business are you in, right? The, the question for the railroads, and they were supposed to be in the transportation business, not the railroad business. So we're in the business of managing change. And I think for people who feel comfortable with that, sometimes people in interviews ask me that, age-old question, David, what keeps you up at night? And my response is actually nothing. I sleep well every night. You know what, this is business. We have problems, we solve some of them, we miss on others, and we go at it again the next day. And I, I think that companies that get frozen in place during periods of change get run over, and we've watched companies in the magazine space do that. Mm -hmm. And those that look at these opportunities like Rubik's Cubes to be solved succeed. And so, um, I think for young people who, and I don't know where the safe harbor is, I tell them if you want it the same, if you want something that's going to be the same three years from now as today, then maybe you should become a school teacher because presumably maybe that's a more stable business. But if you like knowing that you can participate in an organization that is changing and evolving against industries that change and evolve, it's super exciting and tons of upside. I guess the only thing for my own 
career that's been beneficial is I've always been drawn to brands that are at inflection points. Launches, turnarounds, businesses that are broken. You know, uh, when I got my job at The New Yorker, it had 10 years of losses. I got called in one day to see Steve Florio, then the president of Condé Nast and Cy Newhouse. And I was then the publisher of House and Garden, and I brought in my financial package because I thought I was going to give an update, and to which they said, you know, David, we're going to make some changes at the company, which always got your attention, of course, and we're going to name you the publisher of The New Yorker. And at that point, I had exactly zero conversations with them about being published in The New Yorker. Not a one, not a single sentence fragment. And so I, I called my wife when I left Mr. Newhouse's office, and I said, guess what? I got a new job. I'm publisher of The New Yorker. To which she said, um, you know, you, you must be kidding. Why didn't you tell me? And I said, because I never actually had a conversation with them until moments ago. But I felt, you know, fortunate. I parachuted into this business that had enormous potential, but they hadn't totally solved the business model. And so um, I personally have always been drawn to things where there's some risk involved, that you have the chance, again, as I started our conversation, that you can make more decisions that can impact the business in a favorable way. Businesses that are kind of running nice and steady are not so interesting to me. So we think about you know the very fortunate eight years I've had at Hearst. We did the Log Adair acquisition, picking up 5,000 employees around the world. We just did Rodale. We bought um, digital ad agencies. We've launched new products. We've refashioned our um, core digital operations around the world. Um, we have diversified our own business into more B2B and serving industries outside of media. And I love that dynamic. And, and so I guess my approach is the sort of risk taking and kind of thoughtful evolution that I try to do as a publisher, I try to do now as, uh, as the leader of the organization. And I'm very fortunate that at Hearst, uh, that's encouraged and supported and financed by the corporation because that is what has built this magnificent building that we're sitting in today. Sure. Well, uh, David, thank you for all of your insights and expertise. That was fascinating. I'm sure um, it will be parsed over by everyone who listens. And um, thanks for tuning in. This is Inside Fashion, live, well, not live, but um, from uh, beautiful offices of the Hearst Corporation in uh, Uptown New York. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder of the Business of Fashion. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks for having me. Bye. Don't forget to use the Inside Fashion hashtag to let us know any of the suggestions or ideas that you might have and subscribe to BOF Professional, your competitive advantage in today's turbulent fashion landscape. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.